You may be seated. We invite you to turn again in your copy of God's Word to the New Testament book of Matthew. Our text can be found on page 822. Matthew's that first book in the New Testament. We're in chapter 17, reading verses 1 through 13. It's a bit of a a broken record the last couple weeks because what we have uh, week by week is learning something new about Jesus and Peter being either very clear or very confused about what he's learning about Jesus. Uh, We see today more confusion uh, than clarity. But we're in this section of Matthew where we're learning things. We are learning along with the disciples that Jesus from two weeks ago is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He's the anointed one, the promised king to come from God. Therefore, he's ushering in glory and power and victory today, right? Well, the next week, last week, he clarifies. Before the Christ comes in glory, he must suffer. And as he walks a path of suffering, so too does he lead his disciples, his followers, his church, us, along that same path of suffering. We saw it last week in verses 24 to 28 of chapter 16. And so we have disciples now who their idea of a Christ has sort of been blown up. And now they know that they are facing uh, a long time of suffering. And so Jesus again shows them something new about himself. Would you follow along with me in verse 17, beginning at verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, And led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. The grass withers, the flower fades. Word of our God will stand forever. Would you join me again in prayer? Our Lord, we wish that we could have gone up with those three men onto that mountain. (laughs) Oh, Lord, how we wish this morning that we weren't only hearing about the transfiguration, but that we, in fact, could see it along with them. 
So Lord, give us the faith today, the faith to find hope and contentment in this telling. Faith, O God, to behold your Son and our Lord for who he really is. Faith to lay hold of this glimpse of glory, to believe it. And may it spur us on in faith and following you even on your path of suffering. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the more tragic accounts on the pages of Scripture is found in the book of Numbers. You will remember that the people of God, after being enslaved for hundreds of years in Egypt, are brought out by the miraculous power of God at the hand of Moses, and they are promised they will go to a new land, a promised land, the land of Canaan. Before they go to the land, they send out some spies. The spies, they go check out the land, and they come back to tell how wonderful it is. It's the land, they say, of milk and honey. It's got everything we could want. Everything's prepared for us. They even Remember, they have these two guys that come back with uh, one cluster of grapes. But it's so big, they put on a pole between the two guys. That's how they have to carry these grapes back. That's just a little bit of what's in the promised land. There's just one problem. There's already people there. So we're going to trust God and we're going to go and we're going to walk this path and it's going to be hard and we're going to drive them out and then we're going to get the land as God promised. And what do the people say? I don't think so. That's too hard. God gives them, he shows them, he, he puts the glory in front of them, but they don't have the faith to follow. They don't have the faith to follow. What we see in our text this morning is something so much more glorious than a land of milk and honey. So much more magnificent than a really big cluster of grapes. We see through the witness of Peter and James and John the very glory of the Son of God on display. And I hope we ask by the end of this message, do we have the faith to follow? Because just as Jesus has shown us all along, there is glory and then there is the cross. And from here, Jesus will take us back down to the cross. But we have this moment, this sort of snapshot in time, this snapshot of glory that I believe is to sustain the disciples as they go and endure this path of suffering. And I think it's the same for us. That as we are called to follow Jesus on his path of suffering, he sustains us with this glimpse of glory. Or to turn it around, simple as I can say it, the glimpse of Christ's glory sustains us on the path of Christ's suffering. I wonder how many of you have had a mountaintop experience. Maybe it's a religious experience. I mean, it's just a, a good hike and a beautiful day and you're on a mountaintop. And it's great, and you're sort of on a, maybe a spiritual high, and everything's going well, and then what happens? you got to go home, right? At some point, you have to go down the mountain. You have to go, maybe literally, maybe figuratively, back into the real world. There's no descent from a mountain high experience quite like what these three guys go through in Matthew 17. So I want to follow them. Just two points this morning in our sermon. We're going to go from the mountain high... Verses 1 to 8, to the valley low. Verses 9 to 13. The mountain high, the mountain high, mountaintop experience. 
to the valley low, back to the real world. Isn't that reality for us? Let's begin the mountain high, verses 1 to 8. Verse 1 sets some context for us. Six days after Jesus has given them this hard teaching uh, about the cross, he takes aside three of them, Peter, James, and John. This is sort of the inner circle. I think this is the first time we've seen this uh, in Matthew. Uh, he takes aside sort of his, he's got his 12, and then he's got his inner three, and he brings them up on the mountain. Now, one of the biggest questions about the, mount, about the transfiguration is which mountain do they go up on? I don't know. It doesn't matter. Uh, it's a high mountain. That's what it tells us. The question is not really which mountain, but why would they go up on a mountain in the first place? Right. The reason is, what happens on mountains in the Bible? God meets with people. God meets with his people on mountains. Incredible things happen on mountains. I, the church I was at seven or eight years ago actually preached a sermon series on mountaintop experiences. There was like 20 sermons. There's so many of them in the Bible. That's where God not only meets with his people, that's where he shows his people his glory. And really... The journey of scripture is in some ways from a mountain garden in the Garden of Eden all the way to a mountain garden in the new heavens and the new earth. And in between, God gives us these, these glimpses, these moments of his glory with his people on mountains. That's the focus of verses 1 to 9 is glory, the glory of God. We see it both in the glory of God the Son in verse 2. And in the glory of God the Father, when the voice speaks in verse 5. There's nothing like this in Matthew's gospel. There is no picture of Jesus like that. Even the picture we have of him in the resurrection is very sparse compared to this. This moment, really this verse, to describe to us the glory of Jesus. Words do not do it justice. But I'm going to try through a couple different headings to show you how glorious this moment really is. I'm going to show you, number one, that glory is brighter than they had ever seen. It is glory brighter than they had ever seen. Look how Matthew describes it in verse 2. And he was transfigured before them. Now, you're not used to reading verses like that in the Bible. I mean, you're not used to reading verses like that in the newspaper, right? I mean, that's not something that we commonly run into, someone being transfigured. It's not even a word we're that familiar with. And we can sort of, even in the English, we can glean what it means, right? Their figure changes, their appearance changes. They change from one form, form's a key word here, uh, to another, or we could even translate, be transformed. Now, when I read that, I think back to my childhood, and I think of the Transformers, right? I love those Transformers, right? Those robots that are these cool fighting guys, and all of a sudden they turn into a car, or they turn into a boat, or a truck, or a plane. I know some of you boys have Transformers at home, right? Can I come play with them sometime? I miss, I miss those Transformers. Or maybe a different image. Maybe a, uh, a lighter image of a caterpillar transforming into a butterfly, Right? Or the, the actual word is metamorphosize. That actually is the same root that comes from the Greek root. That's this very word, to change forms. When Luke describes it, he describes that the appearance on Jesus' face altered. And it's like they, they, they don't even know how to put what they're seeing into words. 
Matthew's description, he's transfigured as his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Two metaphors, like the sun or as light. Now we've seen someone's face shining before. We've seen that in Moses, right? The reflection of the glory of God. This is no reflection now. This is the actual glory of God shining in the person of Jesus Christ. His clothes are white as light. This is is an image of, of dazzling splendor. If you've been around someone welding metal and the, that light, that light that can, that can literally burn your eyes and welders have to put the, the, the shield, the veil over their eyes so that their, their eyeballs aren't burned. White as, as light, this piercing, dazzling, shining light. But what's, what's actually incredible about this is that Jesus is not actually changing forms in front of them. He is not becoming something different. He's not turning into the sun. He's not turning into light. It is the glory of the holy triune God shining through this human standing right before them. And they don't even have words to describe it. It's like light. It is like the sun blazing with glory. Where does this come from? Jesus speaks at times in the word about what we might even, we might call a, a former glory. All right, we know where Jesus comes from. In Philippians 2 verse 6, Paul, Paul tells us that he was in the form of God. There's that same word. He was in the form of God and then he took on human flesh and he became man. As if he is, as the hymn writer says, veiled in flesh. He's taken on human flesh so much so that in the providence of God, the the glory is, is covered for a moment or for a time or for a season. At the end of Jesus's life in, in John 15, he, uh, 17, excuse me, he prays this prayer to God and he prays, now father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So in this moment, they're seeing the glory that has existed for eternity past. Jesus, knowing that as he is walking on earth, veiled in human flesh, as a full human, when the glory of God is masked or covered, as it were, for a time, he yearns to have that glory return, right? It's a former glory. It's also... A future glory. Hear these words from the book of Revelation, chapter 1. John writes, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like the white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. The glory 
of God the Son from eternity past and the glory of God the Son for eternity future is veiled in these 30-so years in this world, except for this one moment, except for this sort of tear or peak in the veil. Peter and James and John see him, behold him, transfigured, face and clothes full of the dazzling, glorious, majestic, holy splendor of God. We see where he's come, right? We see how far he has come down. We see how far yet he has to go back up in his resurrection and his ascension. But here in this, this moment, this mountaintop, do they see a glory brighter than they have ever seen? And there's nothing that they can compare it to. They look to the past as Jesus brings these other Men before them, Moses and Elijah, they still can't compare. I want to show you, secondly, a glory greater than they had ever known. On this mountaintop, when they see glory brighter than they've ever seen, they see, secondly, a glory that's greater than they had ever known. You want to trot out some pretty impressive figures from Israel's history? There's no one more impressive than bringing out Moses and bringing out Elijah. Now, it's fascinating. How, how do... Peter, James, and John know who these guys are, right? They don't have any pictures of them. Uh, maybe they're wearing name tags, right? Who knows? Uh, maybe they just, or they're introduced, maybe the way they're talking to each other. Uh, we don't know. We don't know how they got there. It seems like it would be surprising. They're dead. It would seem to be surprising if they've been raised from the dead without us knowing it. Some, it's some vision as uh, it's described later by Jesus. What's important is who these two figures are on this mountaintop experience. They both, in their history, have mountaintop experiences. They have both beheld some of the glory of God on a mountain. If you want to go back and look it up later, it's Exodus 33 for Moses, 1 Kings 19 for Elijah. They have seen some of the glory of God. They probably represent... The law and the prophets, all of the Old Testament. Moses for the law, Elijah for the prophets. So they're put here. This is the greatest glory up until this point. This is the greatest glory these men have known. So you can understand Peter's confusion in verse 3. Well, now there's, there's Jesus and there's Moses and there's Elijah. There's three great prophets standing before me. So what should I do? I'll just build them three booths or three tents. Uh, these temporary places for them to stay. I guess... I guess we're spending the night on the mountain, Jesus, right? So Peter uh, proposes, because Peter apparently can't keep his mouth shut, uh, he proposes, why don't we build these three booths, these three tents? Now, what's the problem with this? There's a couple of problems with it. One problem is that Peter seems to think they're going to stay on the mountain. As if he thinks this is it. I guess Jesus predicted suffering six days ago. It's been a long week. Now it's time for the glory, right? I guess we're here. We've arrived. Peter misses the timeline by at least 2,000 years, if not more. And I think the real reason that Peter gets this wrong is he proposes to build three tents and three booths because he's got three guys in front of him. And they're just three great men and three great prophets, and so they need three 
equal places to stay. Isn't Jesus just another one of the prophets? Now, poor Peter, right? This is the second time now he's made a suggestion, and it's the second time he is interrupted by the divine voice. Last week, he's interrupted by Jesus when he starts to rebuke him. This week, he is interrupted. Look at verse 5. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. That's pretty ominous when you're making a recommendation to Jesus, right? A cloud overshadows them. Now, when you think of a cloud coming, you think of something dark, right? You think of something foreboding, but this is described as a bright cloud. The word overshadowed can also be translated enveloped, sort of surrounded them. This is the type of cloud we usually only see in the Old Testament. We see it on mountains. We see it on tabernacle. On the tabernacle, we see it on the temple. This is the glory cloud of Yahweh. So this is called the Shekinah glory. This is not a wispy cloud that blows over for a moment. This is an all-encompassing, all-consuming cloud. It is an assault on the senses, right? They are enveloped. They are surrounded. They are overshadowed. And then out of the cloud of the glory of God comes a voice. The voice says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well-pleased. You've heard that before. Do you remember we heard this in chapter 3? This is the same thing that the father said of the son at his baptism. At Jesus' son's, ba- I'm sorry, at Jesus' baptism, God said, this is my beloved son. Here, I think, of, among other reasons he's saying this, is to make sure that they know there's only one here of the three that matters, right? Sure, you've got wonderful Moses and Elijah, but this is my beloved son. He's the only one. There's him and there's everybody else. And I am well pleased with him. And then that final line that doesn't happen at the baptism, but happens here, says, listen to him. I mean, Peter needs to hear this for sure, right? (laughs) We all need to hear this. But it's not just that we need to listen to Jesus. Listening to him tells us he's somebody foreseen in the Old Testament. The book of Deuteronomy, chapter 18 there is a prophecy that a new prophet will come, a new and better Moses. Here's what we read. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, it's like Moses, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So this has been predicted hundreds and hundreds of years ago that there is coming a prophet, a new and better Moses, and that's the one you listen to. So God says in front of Moses, listen to him. He's saying something about the glory of the Christ. It is greater than anything they have ever known. It is greater than the law of Moses. It is greater than all of the prophets put together and all the miracles and all the shadows and all the types, everything in the old covenant that points to the one to come now has arrived a glory greater than they have ever known. Listen to him. How they respond to this. How they should have responded at the end of verse 2. They fall down terrified. (laughs) They fall down 
terrified. I want to show you a third part of the glory in these verses 7 and 8. That's a glory closer than they had ever imagined. And glory is usually way up there on the mountaintop. And I could stay safe way back here. But look, at, look at verse 6. The disciples heard this. They fell on their faces. They were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. The one who's burning with light, the one who's dazzling with the splendorous glory of God, touches them. That should consume them, right? The, the glory, the holy, the transcendent God of the universe is a consuming fire in his holiness and his righteousness. And we all should rightly be terrified of him. But he touches them. And they are not immediately consumed. Because only in Christ does God's holiness not consume us. Only by Jesus does God's righteousness not destroy us. We stand before a holy, holy, holy God. As, yes, broken people, as, yes, hurt people, but more than anything else, as sinful people who have sinned against his holiness and his righteous law, and we ought to be consumed. But instead, by the grace of Jesus, we are touched. We are told, look at his words, rise and have no fear. There is no way to face the holy God, the bright cloud of his glory, and survive except hidden in Christ. They lift up their eyes, verse 8. They saw no one but Jesus only. Because he's the only one that can do that. Not Moses, not Elijah, not anyone else. They have seen the glory of God. Don't you want a glimpse of this glory? Man, don't you want to go back and go up on that mountain? What do you think the other guys thought when they heard about it later on? Man, why did he take us, right? How jealous must they have been of Peter and James and John? But brothers and sisters, we may be jealous, but we have a glimpse of glory. Where do we see this? Let me show you two areas real quick where we, we see this. We see this in the witness of these men. You notice who doesn't need this? Jesus. <laughs> Jesus doesn't need this moment. He doesn't need to be reassured. Oh, just, just checking God, making sure I'm still glorious like you promised. No, he doesn't need that. This whole scene happens just for these three guys. And listen to what Peter says about it later. Decades later, he writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, verse 16. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying the gospel message we told you, it's not a myth. It's not a fairy tale. But, he continues, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
For we for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to us. What does that mean? He goes on to talk about the word of God, the testimony of God through these prophets, through these apostles. What does that mean for us? That means for us, he has given them this moment so that we have it in the Bible. And we are now by faith witnesses of the glory of Jesus. It's not quite like being up on that mountain, but it's what God has for us that we see with eyes of faith. We hear their testimony and we believe and behold the glory of the Son. It happens by the witnesses. We also get a glimpse of the glory through our worship. Through our worship. You might not feel like you're on a mountain high right now, and that's okay. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, God speaks to a people that are on the verge of apostasy. They are tempted to leave the Christian faith because it's hard, because persecution is coming. And God speaks to them, and he tells them of their experience with the church, their experience in the gathering of believers and the worship of God. He, he says this in Hebrews 6, verse 4. He says, you have been enlightened. He says, you have tasted and you have shared in the glory to come. That is a biblical definition of our experience as part of the worshiping body of Christ. We are enlightened, we taste, and we share in the glory to come. That, that, that means we don't need to go running around trying to find the next best mountaintop experience, right? We don't need to go try to find the church with the best music that's going to lead us perfectly to the throne of grace. We don't need to go to the next conference with the best celebrity speaker, right? We don't need to go on that next retreat. We don't need to read the next greatest book that's going to show us everything. We don't need to watch any of the movies that claim to show us such glorious things about God. What we need is the word and spirit in ordinary and regular fellowship and worship. It's there that the Bible promises and says that we get a taste of glory. It's not like the mountain, but it's one of the closest things we get in this pilgrimage, these mountains, these little humble hills on which we see and behold the glory of God. If only we could live on this mountain, right? <laughs> if only we could live on this mountain, the problem is we got to go back down. Let me show you real quick the valley low, verses 9 to 13. Back to the real world. Jesus tells them, tell no one about this vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Uh, he doesn't, he's not quite ready for the expectations of the Messiah to swamp the people of God. They need to hear the gospel. They need to see the cross. And so it is only a matter of time. There is confusion amongst the disciples. Why, verse 10, do the scribes say that Elijah first must come? See, there's this prophecy. You go back and look at it. It's Malachi verse 4, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 5. The last verse in the Old Testament 
And it promises that Elijah is going to come. And when he comes, will come the Messiah in glory. So they're thinking to themselves, there's Elijah. Why are we going back down the hill? (laughs) Isn't glory supposed to come next? Why do we now have a human Jesus back on a path of suffering? Jesus corrects them. He tells them Elijah has come. Elijah came in the person of John the Baptist. And what happened to John the Baptist? They did to him whatever they wanted. They murdered him unjustly. They they cut off his head. The path that Elijah must walk of suffering and death, so too the son must walk. He has come to suffer and he has come to die. He will be raised. We have seen this already. The promise of the resurrection. That's what comes next. First comes Elijah suffering and dying. Then comes Jesus suffering and dying. Then comes the resurrection of Jesus. And only then... Only then can these three guys go tell everybody about what they've seen and heard. They have to wait. They have to hold it to themselves until after the resurrection, and then they can go tell everyone. You see, we live in an era between the resurrection and the return of Jesus. In a very real sense, we live in a valley between two mountains. The mountain of his resurrection and ascension and the mountain of his return. And we live in the valley in between. We live on the path of suffering in between. But he gives us these glimpses of glory to sustain us, doesn't he? He gives us these glimpses of glory to help us along the way. When I was in high school, I was on the basketball team, the JV basketball team. And we used to practice in the worst gym. It was down in the basement of my high school. The, the varsity got the nice gym up on the main floor. We were in the, the smelly, dark basement. It was always cold, right, in the basketball season. We hated practicing there. But one day, the coach brought a friend, and it was one of the former players on the basketball team. Uh, and he was good. He was so good that he went on for a college, to, to get a college scholarship. He played at the University of Virginia. So here we are, a bunch of guys in this dingy, cold nasty old gym and here comes this guy sort of clothed in glory the guy that we see on ESPN right every Monday night and here he comes and man it was awesome to see this guy because he used to play in this very stinky gym (laughs) he used to walk this cold path he used to run uh he used to run lines on this beat up gym floor and let me let me ask you if you think we practiced a little harder that day right (laughs) did we run a little faster did we dive for a couple more loose balls Did we cheer louder? You you bet we did. We had that glimpse of glory. In Jesus, on the mount, we see the glorified Christ. It's a moment. But y'all, it is all we need to sustain us in this life. Because with the glory of the Christ comes the glory of all he brings with him. The glory of the mountaintop, the glory of the promised land, the land with milk and honey that our forefathers did not have the faith to compress on, to inherit. We too are called to walk the wandering path of a sufferer because we follow Christ through the valley up the mountain of glory. Because what is amazing in scripture is that we too are told that one day we will have bodies made for glory. One day we will have bodies made for heaven. 
One day we will be on that mountaintop with him forever and ever. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, press on. Press on through the valley of his suffering for the mountain of his glory awaits. Let's pray. Our Lord, I pray you give us faith to believe and behold the glory of your son. I pray that you would give us faith to see with the eyes of our heart the glory of Jesus, the Christ, the son of God, the son of man. And I pray that that glory would be so imprinted on the, the eyes of our heart that we would be spurred on, we would be sustained as we follow him through the valley of suffering. Give your people hope and strength. Nourish us and encourage us to press on and lay hold of the one who lies before us. We pray in his name. Amen. As we prepare to come to the Lord's table, we're going to sing a part of hymn 342, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted. We will sing the first three verses before we come to the table. Keep your hymnal open. We'll come back to those uh, afterwards. But verse 